You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The scripture reading this morning, uh, the scripture reading this evening, comes from Mark chapter six, verses forty-five through fifty-two. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea he meant to pass by them but when they saw him walking on the sea they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified but immediately he spoke to them and said take heart it is I do not be afraid and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this evening asking for you to speak to us through your word. Guide us by your love. Open our hearts by your spirit. Transfix us on your glory and your goodness that you reveal to us. Lord, we are not what we ought to be, but maybe tonight by your word you can fashion us to more clearly look like your son. For our souls, for our friends, and for the world, we pray in the name and in the power of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I will say, this is of no offense to anyone at Desert Springs, but when Brooke and I came out to visit Albuquerque in the church, we we asked... Are there, are there some young people that they think that we could be friends with? And one of the elders that I asked this to, he said, well, the, there were, but they all went to Christ Church. And since then, we haven't had friends. So it's good to be with you all, dear friends of mine. Well, our scripture passage for tonight, we see that Jesus saw the crowd for what the crowd really was. Not necessarily for what the crowd wanted to see themselves as, but he saw in the uh, relentless and eager crowds no true worship, no heart of repentance, no, no willingness to truly follow him and to abandon their, their selves and give themselves over to him. They, they wanted to see him as a king who would lead a, a bloody revolution and he would have none of what they wanted of him. Our text from Mark's Gospel, we're reminded that Mark's Gospel is a, is a short one, especially in comparison to Matthew. Many think that Mark is much like Cliff Notes, but uh, what we see here is this, this compact story, a story that's spoken about in all the other Gospels, not that the others aren't more important, but in order to set a more broad stage for you, I want to tell you a little bit about Mark's Gospel in reference to this passage in particular. We see in Mark's Gospel that the, the aim of it was to reveal the beginning story of the Son of God as he would reveal himself to mankind. 
Every paragraph directs its attention to Mark's great intention, which is that we would see Christ for who he is in all of his majesty with full clarity in such a way that we would look at ourselves and go, I'm not good enough, but look at him. We're encountering Jesus through his word at the, at the peak of his worldly influence. And by that I mean there's this climactic power already that's showing itself in Mark 6. Where this extent of Jesus' authority is like it's never been seen before. It's, he's become more popular. He's been doing more gloriously mysterious things. Just before this passage, he, he fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread which I, I would assume many of us have heard that in a VBS story, but just think, that's a lot of people. And a couple of loaves of bread won't feed, won't feed like one family. And he was able to do that. He multiplied himself by empowering other people around him so that the influence of the Father would, would keep going out towards the end of the earth. And the enthusiasm for him is reaching a high point after this miracle in this context. In other different books, John says, after Jesus had done this miracle, that people wanted to take him and make him a king, an earthly king. And that's understandable. What does every king promise? That everyone will be rich and everyone will be fed and everyone will not be wanting. You'll, you'll all have shepherds or shelters over your head. And so they, they look at this man and go, you must be what needs to lead us. They knew now that they would not only have their bodies healed or delivered from disease, but they might even be raised from the dead. Jesus, however, had no plan to be the leader of this revolution, no plan to be a leader of the rebellion, no plan to be a leader or author of some kind of political, clue, political coup. He, he came instead to be killed, to offer himself as a sacrifice for his people, not overtake people in the way that I wanted them to be. He had no political or economic or social agenda. He only had one spiritual agenda, which was to truly save the people who were looking at him and recognizing bit by bit, maybe a bit more clearly of who he was. Now the people, however, wanted only physical things. And we often could place ourselves in the midst of this gospel and go, we, we want that too. Like I've become a new fan of the mall. I don't know if you've heard of the mall. It's where you can buy hats at Lids. And I technically don't like hats. Like I just, I think they, they look funny on generally everyone, especially me. But all of a sudden I got one hat and you, know, and you know what's better than one hat? Two and even three. Like I'm not even a fan of the Rangers, but I have a Rangers hat. We're, we're people that like physical things around us. Even during Christmas time, we want to set up our house to give ourselves, we would say physical reminders, but, but really it's just hallmark joy. And so Jesus comes into people's lives and corrects them bit by bit. And within the entirety of Mark's account of Jesus, we're looking at Jesus before people start to openly hate him. So at least up until this point, that he seems like someone that they want to follow or at least are intrigued by. But, but soon after this, he's going to appear to them as, as someone that they'll start picking up stones after he says things. Or they want him to run out of town or they will even crucify him. And if you're new to Christianity or new to the church, you need to realize that, that when we say things like they wanted to follow him, but they, they instead hated him and they picked up rocks and they wanted to crucify him, that, that was the worst thing you could do to anyone. 
I don't know if you've ever seen a fight. I haven't. I've, I mean, I've watched TV, but I haven't been, like, I had nice, gentle friends in high school. So, like, the idea of someone, like, fighting someone in high school, it seems awful and terrible. The idea that you would want to inflict pain on someone who is doing good to other people really shows the depravity of your own heart. Now, Jesus, to some degree, is doing some pretty incredible things within a pretty close proximity. He hasn't yet, at this point in our gospel, extended his ministry far out from him. His works or his miracles, his healings, haven't gone mainstream yet. He was popular by now, we know, but still, he was a bit reserved. We know this from some of the words even within this chapter. You'll just notice in this chapter alone, Jesus was walking on the water after him coming and feeding 5,000 people and just before him healing the sick, all of the amazing things about who he was within, was within some sort of close proximity. Now one of the main points here is that clearly reflected in Mark 6, the disciples did not get the point of the feeding of the 5,000. That was, that was read to us earlier from the text. They were supposed to see God's deity and power that, not, that only Yahweh could perform. And coming just before the healing of the sick shows that there are particular people who naturally are given some ability to distinguish the power of the Almighty from what would be normally differentiated from like a witch or some kind of sorcerer or just a, just a regular good doctor in town. There was something about him that seemed a little more peculiar to them. Within Mark's gospel, we see again and again attention to Jesus' movement and the followers' wonderment. Oftentimes they're confused and sometimes they're amazed, but Mark continues to move on in his account while never leaving us without the point. So we see the first part of this passage opening up with Jesus sending the disciples off and going to pray by himself. In almost a confusing pattern, or maybe at least to me, of, of bringing everyone a joyous miracle of feeding 5,000 people, Jesus then flees the scene and wants to be left alone, not to be disturbed by the celebration of men. He's continually to us, we would just read from this part, an example of someone who's, who has a heavenly focus about everything that he does. I don't know about you, but anytime I do something I deem awesome in front of my wife, Brooke, like I make a pizza without burning it, I want to bring regular attention to, hey, Brooke, did you see this pizza that you just ate? Like, I kind of made that, and it looks really good. And then she's like, yeah, that was dinner three days ago. Like, and here we have our Lord doing something that seems so breathtakingly incredible and flees the scene. Because the goal was turning people's attention to the Father, not just in the physical works of his hands. Now we must constantly remind ourselves of what Jesus tells us about his time on earth. He came to save people and while showing his divinity and perfection in never sinning or leading others astray, Jesus in the midst of miracles, healings or prophetic words came to die for people. So if you've wandered in tonight and you are not a Christian or you're just checking out religion, what we believe and what we see is true and what history really validates is that there's only one person who came from outside of the world into the world and then offered himself as a sacrifice for the people inside the world. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He, he actually held back the wrath of God 
where he took our place when he died on the cross, putting, putting on his shoulders the sins that we put on him. The scriptures say that in our place condemned he stood. So we see that not only does he do that, but the amazing person that he is just naturally all around him. Jesus calls on his disciples to then get into the boat and go to the other side of the sea, throwing in the phrase, go on ahead of him. Maybe that meant that they knew that he would be there in a little bit. Maybe he just wanted them to go away because he knew if they hung around him, they'd start asking questions and they'd go, how did you do that, by the way? But he tells them to get into a boat and go to the other side. I don't know about you, but I'm puzzled to the point of being humbled here where Jesus did something amazing. And then he told his people to get back to work because there was clearly more for them to do. Jesus just provided food for everyone in sight and then immediately gets back to work. So he sends them off and he goes and prays. And then what happens? A storm goes on the sea. And of course it does. You know, of course, I mean, what, what good movie wouldn't have some kind of climatic storm in it? There's no easy day for the king when he's at work. Verse 47 says that when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. So they had been going for hours by now and it's dark and it's windy. In fact, this body of water is actually below the sea level by nearly 700 feet. So if you just place yourself in the story here, it's dark. You shouldn't do things in the dark. It's raining. Don't go out in the rain. It's windy. Don't get in a boat in the rain in the dark. And he sees what's happening. Look at verse 48. It said, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Clearly here there's a shift in tone as danger looms. It's no longer just a narrative, but now this has become a epic for the people who would read it later. As danger looms, Mark says that Jesus sees them struggling. The story, even, if it's, even in its fourth verse, builds to an unhappy approach of teaching. How could this happen? What in the world is happening? They must have said. Why is Jesus taking us away from our friends? From our family and from our food? Why did he tell us to get into the boat to go to the other side? I thought he knew everything. Does he not even check his own weather reports? Didn't he see the clouds? And you'd think all of this, with all of who he is, he would have stopped them from going out into the sea. Now we read this as reading many more stories before and after it. We know that whenever there's something like this, whenever there's some kind of huge climax that's coming, there's, there's going to be, at least in Mark's testimony, a, a clear lesson to us who are going to read it. So about a little past 3 a.m., it says the fourth watch, so between about 3 or 6 a.m., Jesus goes towards them. And he does this by actually walking on water. Now, there was a YouTube video about eight years ago where people tricked me and everyone else saying that they could walk on water where they built a dock underneath the water and they, they ran out on it and then slowly fell out of time. And for like 45 seconds, you're like, they really did it. They figured it out. Those are great shoes. To which anyone who's tried to walk on water, you just can't. So to us, we just see such an, another incredible picture. We don't want to go too far past it. It's something that we, we hope our children learn much from it, that Jesus not only went after the people, but, but see clearly from the text that he walked on water to get to them. 
They thought, of course, he was a ghost, a frightening spirit coming to get them. Place yourself in their shoes, rain coming into your boat, hoping that you're not taking on too much water. You probably can't see what's out there very well. You you wonder if the wind is either going to capsize you or take you far from where you need to be. You wonder if the lightning might strike the ship and kill everyone on it. You might wonder if there's more out in the sea than just water. And here comes someone walking towards you. Now, you would have to be bizarre to not grow pale in the face and to not have your stomach drop and to not panic or freak out. They weren't looking for Jesus in the midst of the storm. They were expecting even worse things to crush them. For often, we're, we're very much the same, right? Or at least I am. I'm, a, I'm kind of a drama queen, so whenever something goes a little bad, I think that the next awful thing is very much about to happen. Um, when I lived in Virginia in a basement apartment, which I don't recommend ever doing, at least not a basement apartment, it flooded four times. And, and I just thought, this is purely the judgment of God. And, and it wasn't. But then Brooke and I came home from a vacation a couple years ago and there was water all over our floor. Who knew that the washing machine needed to be hooked into the pipe? And so you sit and you look at things that are awful and you just imagine more and more awful things. Parents do this all the time where their, you know, five-year-old might do something bad, color outside the lines, and they're like, he's going to grow up and be a terrible person. We just love to take things to the farthest degree, and I I point all that out in, in some ways in humor because they weren't looking for Jesus at all. Their instinct wasn't to cry out to him. Their, their instinct was to be fearful of anything else that would present itself. So Jesus shows back up into their lives and Mark tells us that they cried out. I can't imagine their cries. The, the tension is certainly at a climax in the story. This is, a, this is the point of the game where if your favorite basketball star was shooting a three-pointer and you're down by two and the ball is in the air and it's about to either go into the net or ruin your season forever, what would you do if your TV shut off? You would not know what's going to happen and that would be terrible. That would almost be worse than, than losing. And so here we have the climax of the story. And immediately upon their great anxiety in verse 50, Jesus calls out, take heart or take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. One of the most repeated phrases in the scriptures is don't be afraid or fear not. That's the, that's the regular rhythm, the regular teaching of God to his people. Do not be afraid. And you got to remember, these guys are are about to die. And the first thing he says is, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. The language here is settling. It's bold yet calming. At the same time, it's it's like like your dad calling out to you, hang on, I'm coming. When you are either scared in the other room or hurt somewhere else. Jesus didn't come by them and say, deal with it. He's not telling the group, well, some of you are fishermen, let's see your stuff. This is truly the time where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But rather he announces himself to this large degree, mirroring back to Exodus where the Lord God calls himself, I am. 
when he passes by in his glory, now properly translated here, I am who I am. Jesus is using his divine name. The Lord is presenting himself to his people in this miraculous way as, they're approach, as he's approaching the boat. And just a thought as I think about this story, when we cry for help, do we remember who we cry to? I think one of the coolest parts about praying, I think praying is really hard in general. It takes a lot of focus. It, it takes time. It takes sacrifice. But, but when you pray, do you remember who's listening to that prayer? Do you remember who, do you, do you recognize who affirms that prayer? When we did the pardon earlier from the Lord, after your confession of your sin, crying out, they didn't know it was him, but he certainly presents himself to them. Do we ask for him to hear us when we're asking him for healing or when we're asking him for deliverance or when we're asking him for protection? Or do we just hope that karma pans out? Or maybe we ask for a little bit of luck or some better circumstances? It's often the temptation for even the most mature Christians to think, as Rudy did in the movie Rudy, if I just prayed more, I would start for the Irish. And people would watch that movie and go, of course, of course that's not it. But when trouble strikes your marriage or sweeps a child away from you or removes or rips a friend from your life, do you remember who's listening to your cries and showing up in the midst of your storm? Do we ask help from the one who made peace by the blood of his own son's body shed for us on the cross. Prayer in the, most, prayer in the midst of trial is remarkably difficult, but rather praying to the Almighty becomes incredibly comforting. And so here we have people not praying well, yet Jesus still shows up to their lives. Well, friends, we are easily like these disciples in a boat being tossed to and fro. And I hope that when we need Jesus the most, we make sure that we are crying out to the one who presents himself most clearly. For he comes to us. That's why we take refuge and courage as he tells the disciples in verse 50. The welcoming event of no longer being afraid had everything to do with the presence of the Son of God in their lives. My favorite part of this passage is in verse 51. So if you have a Bible, look at verse 51. In fact, I'm willing to say this is one of my favorite parts of all of Scripture, where the Bible tells us, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Here we have the Lord seeing his people in trouble, and he doesn't walk around to the other side waiting for them to get there. He walks on the water and doesn't pass by their boat or doesn't start showing instructions to them or doesn't stay, start throwing water out of the boat. He actually gets in the boat with them. This is what it means to, to cry out for the Lord to come into your life, to, to physically expect him to be there, to, to show up and for the storms to stop. Maybe not in a materialistic way. You know, I'm in debt. Come, Lord Jesus. And then I'm rich. That's not how it works. But, but the, the change of our affections always occur when Jesus shows up into our lives. 
How comforting this can be to your soul that it's Jesus who gets in the boat with them. I can't help but feel overwhelmed when watching people go through struggle and real, real struggle. Our advice to them is the same again and again. It's, it's Jesus who sent you out into the world to help him minister. And it's Jesus who gets in the boat in the midst of the storm with you as you go out. You know, I know that you guys support some of the same missionaries that, that my church supports. And when we send those families out, we know that we don't just send them out empty-handed. But that the grip of the Lord is on their lives. In the same, it is the same for you and I when we go out into a workplace or even to a coffee shop or we go over to someone's house for a party. Now, if you're a proud person, do you see the irony in the story? Here's a boat full of fishermen, tax collectors, and, and common people feeling like their Messiah has deserted them. Surely they thought, well, I guess we need to do this by ourselves then. Yet, then sometime between 3 or 4 a.m., it was Jesus who got into the boat and who silenced the wind. It wasn't a good fisherman that figured it out. It wasn't a good engineer or someone who knew how to navigate the sails. If you're a leader, either in this church or in another context, do you see the irony here? The, the Harvard School of Business would never dissect the story for a case study because it's not really about the leaders or even the followers. They needed something foreign in their lives to ultimately save them. And this, this small picture of what, of what it really looks like to follow Jesus, where we need him to totally intervene in our lives. And the gospel call is that what these men should have done is what we have the opportunity to do. To react to the goodness of God casting his glory in front of us and calling out to him as a savior realizing that we can't save ourselves, and not only can we not save ourselves, we're actually not even good enough to stand before him. This morning I preached at my church, Revelation 7, where they were standing, where the, where the believers, all the believers of, of history were standing before the throne, and they were singing this song of salvation, but, but what allowed them to stand there was that they were wearing clothes that were not their own. And so when we call out to the Lord, we, we must deny ourselves, put ourselves off, and, and ask him to reclothe us, or shelter us, or feed us, or quench our thirst. For more than being a calmer of the sea of fear, this passage is about Christ's power over creation and the presence within it. Jesus, at this early part in his ministry, is showing his lordship and control, his compassion and contentment. Him saying, it is I, is a hard reflection of authority, ownership, and power. But also the symbolism of him leaving his place of prayer and walking on water and climbing up the side of the boat into the disciples' midst is a strong picture of a shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. Keep in mind that he was not too busy ruling and reigning over everything to stop and go and get into their boat. The kingdom is proclaiming, the kingdom he is proclaiming is one of his power, authority, and control, but also his presence. So some of you may wonder, what's the point of this when you think about what is even the point of my life? You know, this is the time of the year where, we, where if you're like me, I look back on 2018 and I go, I wasted all my time. 
I didn't grow taller. I'm not more successful. I cannot dunk a basketball. What have I done with all this opportunity? I joined a gym and I still can't do it. But many of you feel like you are wandering, aimlessly living day after day, like you're being tossed around in a sea, like your sails have been ripped from you and water is coming in and you would give anything to be reminded that the Savior of the universe is in the boat with you. If you're in Christ, be encouraged from this text. Know that you're not telling yourself a lie. You're not a fool like the world says you are. There is no wandering boat in the arms of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, it's not important that we feel our grip of God, but that we feel his grip on us. And we do that again and again by looking at who he is from the scriptures. Take courage, Christian, that it is Christ. He is the one who came into your life, and we know the Spirit is living through us. Now, to those of you who might not be followers of Christ, what what do you want from Jesus? Are you one of those who are just, what? it's time for me to apparently wake up at 6 p.m. No wonder I didn't wake up this morning. For those of you who aren't Christians, what are you looking for out of religion or out of Christ? Are you just wanting to be fed? Being fed is a good thing. Are you just wanting him to quench your thirsts? That's also a good thing. Are you wanting him to teach you or guide you or direct you? We'd say those are good things, but it's not good enough. The Lord doesn't just want your effort. He actually wants your life. We believe that when you believe in him, it's like this picture of him taking all of your sins and removing them from your life. That's what Jesus offers. He did enough of that to demonstrate his power and to demonstrate divine compassion. Do you want from Jesus what he really came to bring? And that is the eternal life of forgiveness and salvation being delivered into his midst. Friend, you need to know that if that's what you're looking for, you can have it. You can pray for forgiveness and he will show you forgiveness. You can call out to him in mercy and and the one who gives mercy will give you mercy. So our text tonight shows us many things. And I hope from it you can be reminded that your life may be uniquely troubling full of trial, full of tribulation, but your life is much like others who have gone before you, filled with the presence of Jesus, filled with the lamb who has no end in caring for his flock, filled with the love of the Savior who left his place on the side of a hill and came to you and got into the boat with you and the storm stopped and he promises that they will stop forever one day. Let's pray to him. You, O God, drew us, and Christ received us and keeps us. And we pray to you in confidence, knowing that he will raise us. And so we offer our praise to you, O Lord, with gratitude and with joy, with humility and with wonder. Lord, we pray that you would give us the gift of obedience that you would give us the the heart's desire to rejoice more deeply in who you are. We pray that through testimonies like this in Mark 6, that you would remind us that you are a seeking Savior and a comforting Savior. Lord, what can we say in gratitude for the fact that you drew us and you complete the work in us? 
We rejoice in your kindness that you have extended us. May we be faithful. Draw us near. May we be loyal. Make us new. Father, we pray to you as people who love you. And we pray in the power and in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.